CEOs Speak is an exclusive BitBeam podcast series featuring interviews of hundreds of skilled and talented CEOs who share their strategies for leading some of the country's most successful companies. Join Charlie Katz, our executive extraordinaire, as he uncovers the heart and soul of today's business leaders. So today we have with us Eric Straffel from Sumi7, the founder of Sumi7, a very interesting concept of a, a company. And Mr. Straffel was the CEO of Fortune 500 companies. He has over 20 years leadership experience, um, and he started off as a mechanical engineer. Let let me start with Eric Straffel before we get to Sumi7. I'm always interested in understanding the person who founded the company because I think he creates the blueprint that the thumbprint of the company. So going back in your history, and I mean going back to your early years as far back as grade school, if you look at yourself today and you look at yourself then, do you see a connection? Was there something that inspired you did it come from your family and experience or your own DNA that now you look and say, yeah, I was always headed to where I am today? Yeah, I, I do. I see quite a few connections. And it started with, you know, in, in my upbringing, very hardworking family with my, my both my parents worked. Uh, didn't, I was the first person in my family to graduate uh, college. It, which, which it seems common among, you know, successful people and that you, you're, you have an innate drive. Uh, to want to maybe prove something out, maybe for your family. I don't, I don't know, but, um, my mom was always optimistic about a better future. So I certainly share her optimism. My dad was always hardworking and, uh, it worked many hours and weekends, uh, had his own, he was an electrician, had his own business for a while as an electrician, uh, worked a lot of hours and on the weekends, he was always helping the neighbors. And so there's an element of work hard and serve others, uh, along with optimism. That carried through throughout my career, and I didn't, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I became an engineer because I, I thought it was a good foundation, and I liked to solve problems. And I, I thought, you know, what better way to learn how to do that more by uh, than by getting into engineering? And I didn't necessarily aspire to be, uh, you know, a CEO of, uh, of a company. I just wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make an impact, and I wanted to contribute because I recognized the value of hard work. And, uh, and, and that's where I got my, my personal meaning was out of feeling like I was contributing to something bigger. And that, you know, that goes way back to my childhood. You, you, you said you made an, an interesting statement, solve problems. As a, as a grade school, the concept of solving problems, was that pronounced? Uh, was that more, may I surmise, your father was an electrician. He was always solving problems and, and that sort of, was your surroundings, you know, the nurture is nature. You just heard that type of language and, and also, uh, seeing your father solve problems encouraged you to go in that direction simply by osmosis. Yeah. I, you know, I think it probably did. And that the, um, you know, we, our, our finances were up and down as a family. And, um, and I think the, I saw my parents look at every issue as something to be solved as believing that they could work their way through it. And I, I think that probably translated into a belief that whatever obstacle comes in your way, 
it's it's something to to attack, not fall back from in uh in a sense. I'm always interested in how culture forms us. And and I I'm born and bred a uh, New Yorker. My grandparents were immigrants who came here. Uh what how did you get to Rochester? Was that generations that that your family were in Rochester? Was in Rochester? No, you know, I was I was born in Cooperstown, New York, a baseball hall of fame, so big uh, big baseball fan and baseball card collector still. Um, and my parents were high school sweethearts in a, in a school in Richfield Springs of about a uh, graduating class of 30 people. My dad got a job at Kodak. Um, and so Kodak brought us out to Rochester and then, you know, doing well for a while. And then when Kodak, uh, kind of missed the, the digital revolution, uh, my different and that's, uh, you know, but Kodak brought us to Rochester. Then he got into uh, his electrical business and, and other stuff from there. You mentioned uh, the South and, 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 and the Southern uh, personalities. What was it like in Rochester? Like, what did you pick up in the, in, the, in the nature of the people of Rochester that you see you represent today? Yeah, I think Rochester was a small town uh, community feel of people that look out for each other. And, uh, and I think I feel a sense of that today and that, uh, you know, my family, of course, but I, I feel a sense of the people in my community I need to look out for, which is what, you know, the, the type of community and, and that I felt Rochester was. And it was very, very blue collar, you know, all hardworking people, but uh, always willing to help their neighbor. And I had a bunch of friends uh, that I grew up with that were the same way that I knew were always there for me. So then you moved on in, in your high school years. Do you have a sense of where you were headed? Was uh, engineering a part of your thought? Were you reading up on it? Did you see us headed in that direction, or did it come later? Uh, it, it was early on, and I um, I was good at math, and so I it was a bit of following what I'm good at, following my strengths, which was math and science, and then a bit of wanting you know back to the problem solving and wanting to. I wanted to have a successful career and I, I thought, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, but an engineering foundation from there, I felt like that's as good a foundation as any that I could launch into different things. And so I, I felt like, okay, if I get into engineering, that will give me options and optionality is always good in my mind. You, you, you ended up working for uh, Pratt Whitney. On airplane engines, it was the engines I believe for the military. Uh, just as a side, I'm curious, was that a security job? Do you needed security? Or? Yeah, I wanted to go into either biomedical. As I got through engineering, I did a, a couple projects in biomedical and aerospace, and so the, I wanted to get into one of those two fields. I, I, they, I was interested, passionate, inspired by both of those fields uh, and, and the impact that they can make, and so I. Uh, tried to get into both and ended up with a job at Pratt Whitney. And yeah, it was, uh, military engines working on the F-14 engine at the time, the TF-30 engine, which was really cool. You know, that's the time of Top Gun. And, uh, and, uh, so it, it was a ton of fun to get out. And, uh, you know, I would see, I'd see an engine test stand with engines with its afterburner on and you're rolling up to it with the ground shaking. And it was just an experience I had never seen before with what technology and innovation can do. And it, that was certainly a launching point uh, through inspiration to do uh, most of my career in aerospace 
uh, the rest of the time. I have to ask this question somewhat naively. Uh, years back when I lived in LA, I had a friend who worked for Hughes. And I asked him one day, what are you working on? And he said, the rotor for a helicopter. And I said, well, what kind of helicopter? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? The rotor lived, played list to helicopter. He says, no, I only have to know about the rotor blade. I guess the mechanics and, and all that. And I thought to myself, my background is advertising and, and Madison Avenue. And in advertising, you have to know everything about everything. You have to know your product, your competitive product, who your target audience is. So when you worked on the engine, did you have the big picture of the plane itself, or was it really confined to the engine? Yeah, I, I did. I think that's a really interesting point. I So I knew every aircraft the engine went on, and uh, I, I spent time out at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base watching the F-100 engine take off on F-15s. And um, it and uh, I don't know, I practiced a good job of making sure that you knew what you were working on and you knew the important roles that they play and the missions that they support. And I think that did carry with me and that I, I always wanted people in, in every role that leadership role I've had, I always wanted people to know what they were, what they were working on in the bigger and tie that to the bigger picture. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I would think exactly that you need to know the big picture because there's so many nuances. It's interesting. I do a course on creative thinking and Creative thinking is diametrically opposed to logical thinking. Logical thinking I define as looking through a telescope. It's vertical. You look straight at the problem and what's related to the problem, the information you gather, and but you don't see the surroundings around it, whereas creative thinking is broad. You want to know everything about everything, and even the crazy ideas have validity over time. And uh, so I think the big picture... I think you do the nuances of what you're trying to accomplish. When you see a plane take off or you hear a pilot explain to you what it's like, you know, when you're up there and you're boarding a missile, let's say, you hear, you, you think about it differently when you, when you're putting together your calculations, I, I would think, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. And I, I think creative thinking is a different state of mind than problem solving. It, to the point where I will go into sometimes a meeting where I'd like my team to think creatively and, and I'll go in saying, hey, this is a discovery meeting, not a problem solving meeting. And so we're here to listen and learn and understand different perspectives. And even um, there's a decision making model. Uh, Dell, Michael Dell has a decision making model that applies a similar concept where you have one meeting to review facts and alternatives, not make the decision, which is solving a problem. And then you allow everybody to absorb that and put their creative brain around that. And then you have a second meeting where you come back and make the decision. And I think that distinction and those two mindsets plays into a lot of different aspects of life. Yeah, I agree that creative thinking is the entree into the final decision where you have to make judgment. But at the first stage, you just want to have the ideas flow and, and get the best ideas, and then you begin to evaluate them. In, in, in what is apparent from our interview is that you had a, a, an interest event uh, towards leadership. Leadership seemed to be a very big focus uh, for you. How did that evolve and, and why? 
Yeah, I think uh, my first leadership role, I was a manufacturing supervisor over a three-shift operation. And I a lot of the what I had learned growing up and what I appreciated from leaders I worked for fed into that. And it was things like I wasn't going to ask somebody to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. And so if I'm going to ask you to mop the floor, I'm going to once in a while get out there and mop the floor. Um, I led a lot of people that knew a lot more than I did. And so that led to uh, probably a need and a belief that I need to be inclusive. I need to pull their knowledge out in my role that makes the team better is to find out how to bring out the best in everyone. Cause it's certainly not me. Otherwise I'm a bottleneck for what they can do. And so that led into a belief that as I moved up into higher and higher roles, I didn't want to lose that. And it became what I call frontline leadership, which is, Staying connected, no matter what level of the organization you're at, the problems are solved closest to them, which is with your frontline teams. And if you ever lose that connection, then you lose the insight into the impact that your decisions are making, the strategic direction of the company, and the buy-in from your people, which is, in my mind, the most important thing to a successful strategy is the buy-in from the people that are going to actually bring it to life. And so that that all fed into the book on leadership, which was – uh, which I, it was a battle that I fought, which was not to get caught up in a title or a position or it might have five or seven layers in an organization. But if you ever lose sight of what is impactful and makes a difference and what people care about on the front lines, then you're going to start to lose your effectiveness as a leader. Okay. So you talked about one point I just want to spend a moment with the, the bureaucracy of a company. And, and, and the tug of war that goes on in, on two levels. One is on a personal level where people have their own personal agenda for their careers. And the other level is they have the agenda for their division, for their department. And how do you synchronize? How do you find a way not only to lead your group and the people under you, but to find a way to coincide or coexist in a positive fashion with the other leaders? Yeah, I think there, there, I'll start by where you can remove complexity. I, I think that's the starting point because large organizations, uh, Boeing has been around for more than a hundred years. And as you grow up, you, you develop, uh, all kinds of institutionalized systems, processes, machines, equipment, technology. And before long, you've lost all the people that know how it all fits together. So if you can simplify the business as much as possible and how how processes work, how teams work together, and then simplify the the administration of the organization, the meetings that you're having that people wonder, why are we even having this meeting? Be really purposeful with meetings and, and do all that by setting an aligning purpose at the top. So vision, purpose, strategic clarity, I, I still think is really important. And then working that down in the organization at every level so each leader knows how they contribute to that vision or that purpose. And that's hard work to do. It takes time. And I think that's where a lot of times uh, companies are moving too fast to, to get a good job of that done. But when you do that, every leader should know how they support the, the mission of the company and how they interact with the, their peer groups and they need, and then they can communicate that with their, with their team to try to align agendas. Cause that, as much as you try, there's still going to be some misalignment that pops up. So it's something that you've got to do on a repeating basis. I want to, I want to address what you just said, but you also brought up something that, that again, in creative thinking, I find 
it's actually more in going into uh, economic behavior, which is the cognitive biases that develop within a company. You know, you mentioned the, over time you get locked into certain methods, you get locked into certain, this is where we did it, this is where it's always been done, we don't want to risk it anymore. In other words, a company at a young stage is very aggressively uh, trying out new ideas. They, they're fighting to get there, so to speak. Then they reach a plateau where they're mature, and they're doing well. But they have the biases. They don't see what's coming up behind them, the next guy coming up behind them. I don't know if I once saw years and years ago, and, and I think it was a perfect uh, demonstration of companies. There was a Robert Redford film about a skier, top skier, and he's finding his way to the top to become the best skier, you know, downhill racer in the world. I think it was called downhill race. I don't even remember. It goes way back, and he finally makes it. And as he wins the race, and he's there at the bottom and getting all the adulation and so on. He looks over his shoulder at the guy who comes just behind him, and a scant couple of seconds behind him, a young guy, a younger guy, and you can see in his face he knows that he's the guy who's going to take my role. You know, it was a beautiful shot, you know. It was like, without saying a word, it was all there, you know. I climbed to the top, and, and I think when, when you climb to a certain level, you forget what you did to get there, and then there's somebody behind you who wants to get to where you are today. And because you're so locked into your methodology, you don't really become aware and make the defensive postures. I mean, that's what, uh, what, uh, what's his name over at Harvard when he talked about disruption. The whole concept of disruption was based on young companies under the radar coming in and taking over your industry without you focusing on them and even paying any attention to them, like hotels not paying attention to Airbnb uh, or, or Blockbuster not paying, paying attention to Netflix. So you mentioned that. How do you deal with that? How do you deal where you, 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 you don't get yourself locked in? You're able to say, hey, you know, yeah, this method works, but things evolve. Like you said, Kodak. I mean, I was in Kodak with my intention. So what's your leadership method to to keep loose and and, and young, so to speak, in mind, to keep looking and and keep evolving rather than staying static? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think one thing different from maybe 20 or 30 years ago is there is a burning platform that if you don't change as a company, you're going to go the way of Kodak or Blockbuster. And so the, it's it's in our face today that the, the need to change. That said, change is really hard for people, and the hardest part is letting go of the past. And so for me, one of the pivots in my career was I was very driven as a leader, and, you know, and once I had kids – I, I got into it, it helped me with the mindset of it's not about me anymore. It's about the mission of our company and, and not, not even so much the company, more the purpose of the company and the role that the company plays in society and in the industry or whatever you're doing. So it's more about that. And the best way that I can help that is to develop other people and use my experiences. It's not so much to always have all the answers is to use my experiences to develop others so they can provide other innovative solutions and bring their ideas to the table and their voice to the table. And if you, and so be more inclusive, 
and be willing to be led by your team. And it's a total mindset shift. It's really hard to do. It's very uncomfortable. But ultimately, sometimes you got to get out of the way. And if you do that, you're actually being a more the what's not intuitive with that is you're actually being a more effective leader and you'll get better results. And so I had a lot of people that supported me and uh and I got to the point where I I I had the mindset shift largely when my first son was born and said, you know, it's not about me anymore. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I can to help others. And in doing so, they will grow the business. And we had a lot of success from that. But it was not intuitive, it was very uncomfortable. But that is uh the, the the environment is very dynamic today, and if you're not able to get the best out of everyone on your team in in a in diverse perspectives, you're not going to be successful. You know, interesting. You just described a very interesting tightrope that a leader has to walk on, and by that I mean, on one hand, he has to keep the company as it is today stable. It has to be working. All the systems have to be go. But that they, he has to also have the ability, the mental flexibility to listen to someone and say, hey, I got this great new idea, which is totally different or in a different direction, and be able to absorb it and think about it and say, well, maybe there's merit behind it, and it's going to be, cause us to have to make major adjustments if you want to go in that direction, and be open-minded about it. Rather than, you know, it's almost like you, you, you're schizophrenic in a sense. You, you, you need the stability of the maturity and at the same time, you need the flexibility of creativity. And you've got to balance that out and figure out when to integrate them together. And it's a tightrope is the way I'm hearing it from you. Yes. And you reminded me, so a big, with our company now, Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a huge focus, right? That's the difference we're trying to make. But as a, as a leader early on, I think one of the untapped development opportunities, maybe the, the biggest opportunity for all big companies is rotation programs for early leaders. And the reason is to learn to appreciate different perspectives, get out of your comfort zone and develop the learning agility that you will need later on. And I had the opportunity to work in China, in Mexico, in all different functions and different industries and totally out of my comfort zone. And what that forced me to do was learn to appreciate different perspectives from people that look different from me, had totally different backgrounds and different experiences. And it gave me the learning agility that that I'm convinced helped me be a better leader later on when I now had a diverse team working for me. I had, I felt like I had honed my listening skills, recognizing that what I'm hearing isn't always what they're saying and to really dive deep into that. And so that learning agility, I think, is the core piece of that. And getting different experiences early in your career, I think, is one of the best ways for people to build that. You're demonstrating, uh, I come from the creative world. I was a writer, creative director, still am a creative director. And that flexibility of mind, that openness of learning from everywhere and elsewhere, the curiosity, the absorbing, the, uh, it's so much the mark of the Steve Jobs, of the Da Vinci, and you know, and 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 you, interesting, mechanical engineer is a very specific discipline. I mean, you work with the numbers and you work with the data and the analytics, and and things have to work in a certain logical. And yet, at the same time, you're able to go outside of that. 
and 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 see beyond that and 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 absorb it and then find a way to integrate it. I mean, that's an interesting duality. Have you ever reflected on that? Yeah, I you know I I have, and I you're right. I, I was a I was a good engineer, but that's all I knew at one point. But step by step, I picked up different skills, and every time I picked up a different skill, it helped to broaden my perspective. And I I think that's. That's the 20 year journey that was my career. And I was pretty intentional about that. I, I actively sought out if I didn't know how to do something, I wanted to do work on a project, read a book or take a job that would help me learn that perspective. And I did that for 20 years. And, and I, and, and without as much foresight as it seems right now, but I was doing that. I was an avid learner and I, I, I just knew it would help me be more effective. But I do think that was critical in one step at a time though. So let's talk about Sumi Seven. You, in a way, you were just describing the the, the vision of Sumi Seven, but, but elaborate on it. How did it come about, and what is the, the vision? What is the philosophy? Yeah, I, I had started to take a lot of what I had learned and, and just volunteer, maybe uh, well, first time in I think 2006, so way back. But that turned into what is essentially a playbook to help smaller and, and mid-sized companies grow their business. And small companies make up half of the jobs in the U.S. It's where all the growth is. It's also where a lot of companies fail, and especially diverse companies, companies led by women and people of color. And um, so I, I felt like I had a skill set to give back. In 2000, 2018, we took that playbook that had been developed, and I surrounded myself with a group of entrepreneurs and we launched programs to help companies uh, get beyond 5, 10, 15 million and, and be the next big companies that shape the, shape the world. And um, when uh, in 2020, uh, and this was still just a part-time on the side uh, gig, in 2020, um, with all the racial equity discussions, we, I, I have a diverse team, which is back to something I fundamentally believe in. We said, hey, we can make a difference and ultimately – that led to me leaving Boeing to to take the opportunity to build back the economy uh, more inclusively. And so we want to help especially diverse businesses. We've got a program that applies to any growing business, but we want to we want to help diverse businesses grow and change the landscape of the economy. And economic opportunity is something I fundamentally believe is something that builds bridges across society. Without economic opportunity, you're, you know, just putting food on the table, you can't even have the conversation. And so Summit, uh, the seven comes from the tallest peak on every continent in bringing the world together. So there was a bit of inspiration there. We talk about Summit as a verb, not the, yes, it is. It could be a summit that you're, you're finding your peak, but Summit is a verb and, and, and climb and the belief that everybody uh, everybody should have the opportunity to climb, and, and we want to get behind companies that have an aspiration to grow, create jobs, be the next influencers in society, and uh, help those businesses grow. And, and the time was now, uh, as the economy is now starting to rebound after after COVID and a lot of a lot of the challenges that we've had. Two questions. First, of, first, in general. The big guys who have the big dollars, who can afford the R and R, and today everything is tech controlled, you know, governed by tech. It's just that's where we we are today. 
and they have the the dollars to support the R and R. And so the the small guy is always trying to is like on a treadmill, just trying to stay where he is and not get drowned. And with all the good intentions and vision of something, at the end of the day, you have the big guys out there who just sort of dominate and grow. I mean, let's take a look. I mean, as a you know, the example Apple or. Or Amazon, I mean, you know, they're not giving ground to anybody. And, and, and every time they, they have more money, they just are smart enough with what to do with it. So where does this small guy eventually have the chance to really be meaningful in the economy on a large yeah. scale? Yeah, yeah. So we, we talk about some stuff that you could get out of an incubator or accelerator too, right? Know your customer, what problem you're solving. And, and so we're we're not that. We do cover some of that in our program. But what you see in what we call the mighty middle, which is where most, most of the jobs are created uh, in the U.S. and in the world today, is that once those companies hit their certain plateau, they get to 10 or 20 employees, they now need to start to hire leaders, get themselves out of the business, start to document, uh, develop, document, and delegate their processes. That That's a transition that's really hard to do. And if you don't have venture backing, you don't have the support, you don't know how to do that, you can't go hire a consultant to help you because you're not big enough yet. And you're probably not big enough to get on private equity radar in terms of, you know, getting getting their backing. And so there's this lost uh, set of companies in the, you know, two to five up to maybe 50 million that that have good products and a good business and a good market that they can grow in. They just don't know how to operationalize all that yet necessarily, and then develop leaders and get themselves out of the business. And it, it becomes all about leadership and engagement. So that's where we jump in. And, and so what we believe is that the companies in that sweet spot, 31 million, million small businesses in, in, in the U.S., out of there are the next enterprises a decade from now or two decades from now. And if we can connect with those companies now and build inclusion in their DNA from the start, build sustainability in their DNA from the start and build. We talk a lot about culture and values. If we build that from the ground floor up, we think we can change the, the way companies run in the future. So it's not about changing back to, uh, you know, changing mindsets. You already have that mindset because you come out of it, out of our program or, you know, the, the, the ecosystem that we want to build with a sense of learning agility and a bunch of other companies that believe the same thing, that the, they are in business to make a difference for more than themselves. At, at that point, where they achieved that level of, of, of success on a minor scale, but it's firm, they're 5, 10, 15, 20 million, up to 50 million. What they've done and how they've evolved is what was within them. They had that capability, that intelligence and, and, and that drive. When they will go to the next level, it's a transformation not only of the company, it's a transformation of the leaders. So human psychology becomes a very big factor. You, you know, for many, it's fear. I, it's the unknown. I don't know what to do, and I don't have the experience there, and the, the demands are much deeper and greater, and the risk is greater. So it, at what point do you become a psychologist? In, in, in being able to make that transfer, help them make that transformation. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's a really important point in that the one is we use a process of inquiry. So the, the whole workbook is asking you questions, recognizing that the, the answer is within. And so it's a process of inquiry to guide you the, along the way and that we, we want to give you the, the fishing pole, not the fish uh, analogy. Right. So it's a process of inquiry. You're part of a peer group. So we run it. Uh, we've we have a couple different models, but one is with a cohort of other business leaders in in those cohorts. Oftentimes, that peer group of other business leaders talking to each other is a ton of the value. So they've now got a network to bounce ideas off of where they're afraid to make the wrong decision. They now have 10 other business leaders to say, hey, what did you do? And, and build confidence in, in, in the decision that they're about to make and, uh, and support that. And then we want to be there with them along the way. So we give them a bit of a backstop. And so if you ever want to fall back, you know, as you hit a challenge in the future, as you're trying to grow, uh, there's a bit of a security backstop that we hope to give the businesses that come through our program so that they may be willing to take more risks than they would on their own. Uh, hopefully we can find a way to unlock some, you know, cash flow and margin so they can invest in their own growth. And, uh, but you're spot on and that that's part of uh, what we're trying to address with the process of inquiry. In, in, in our conversation, the interview is also in reviewing your site. You have certain models that you apply. And, and, uh, if I could bring in mechanical engineering, you have a very disciplined approach to things. The question that buzzes in my mind is that I worked with every range of clients. I worked on in my campaign for Colgate, for Home Depot, for Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I also work with entrepreneurs. If there's one thing that I found in dealing at the high levels, including the presidents or the founders of companies, they're all radically different. They come to you with different perspectives, different personalities, different egos. Uh, I'm not going to say who, but I have to tell you, I actually met a godfather. Now, what do I mean? It was a Christmas party. And the head of this company comes in. He has two men walking beside him, very uh, meticulous, with a very serious look. And when he sat down, he would just reek of power. He just reeked. And they would lean over and whisper in his ear. And anything you can imagine from whatever you can imagine. And all I know is if he got up and kissed me on the cheeks, I would have fainted that away. <laughs> <laughs> He had that aura about him. But they're all different, including the people within the agencies that I work with. So how could you create from a, a, a mechanical engineering discipline, I don't mean it's mechanical engineering, but the idea of, of a structure, when you're dealing with people who are very different, who take to things in different ways, based on their personality, based on their education, their background, their culture, and all that. How, how, how do you mold it to work for them on a consistent basis? Yeah, I, I think the um, it. So I, I do see everything as a process, right? And I, as I've as I've grown up through leadership, I try to figure out what's the issue with the process, not the. Can I ask you one more second? One second, please. Please uh, come back in a few minutes, please. I'm sorry, there was somebody. What do you call it? Uh, you yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I would start with uh, everything is a process. And so what I rather than saying, what did somebody do wrong? I'd say, what what happened with the process? One second. One second. Please, I'm in the middle of something. You need to come back. Oh, oh, come back next week. 
Yeah, thank you. Okay, I apologize. I was expecting the interruption, but uh, hoping <laughs> it wouldn't happen. <laughs> Go ahead. No problem. Uh, so, I, you know, I would I would start by looking at things as a process as a leader, where you you coach people to make the process better and, and add their own ideas and and um and so it's it's the process that fails us, not the people. People are you know generally um, very capable, and if we un inspire them to lead and manage a process, they can do that. Over time, I built up a way to systematize how you take strategy and bring it down into implementation. And through a set of tools, so you do market analysis, you do a SWOT, you know, a lot of basic tools, and then you bring that into an operating rhythm. And I, it's something that I've refined over time, which is really, it, it's hard to do, and it's still a bit complicated. But the, as the, there was a I think it was a French author that wrote, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. And systematizing it is absolutely my engineering mindset. Many years to the point that we've got a system that you can follow. And at the end of it, you don't get a cookie cutter approach to running your business. You get your own approach in, in your own proprietary system to running your business because the system drives you through a thought process on what to think about and what are the questions to ask and how to gain insights and how to gain alignment. And the output is unique for every company. And so I, I do think you're, it's a really important point that our goal is not to help companies be like every other company, it's to help you be your best self. And so we designed the system as a way to allow people to think through with their team What's best for them? What are they trying to solve? What are they trying to accomplish? How is it working today? How do we see that? And how do we show up with the market? What are customers saying? What are employees saying? Using data points along the way to inform how to best run their business that aligns with their values and their purpose. And so the, the system is, it's not a system to run any business. It's a system to figure out what's best for you. But I... I Hitting the truth when I say that the difference between you and McKinsey and uh, Deloitte is that you deal with a different level of companies, but essentially you're doing the very similar work. Yeah, I would say yes, and we get a little bit more involved in implementation. So recognizing that uh, we have a, a couple companies now that are in the two to three million range that we're working with, they just don't have the resources to do some of the activities and uh, to map a process or to to update uh, some digital content. And so that's where we want to be able to jump in and support them. And uh, recognize how, how, long, how long do you stay with the company? Our program is 12 weeks, but then we do quarterly check-ins after that. And they have the option, you know, different ways that they can engage with us for as long as they want to. So uh, it's like you, you know, the proverbial letting the 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 verlings fly from the nest. You set them up, and then they're off and doing it, and then they they decide whether or not they need to come home again, so to speak. Yeah. You, yeah. I, 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 some, you have like a a, a staff a. a or you bring in people for the project? We have what we, the team that we have now is we is specifically built around the, the needs of the companies that we're supporting now. I do see that expanding and it will expand through not only our own team, but through partners that we'll work with it. As we see 
recurring issues and problems that companies are trying to address, we'll find ways that we can support them, whether it's us or through a partner. Have you ever thought of, and this is interesting, you've run Fortune 500 companies. So now I'm speaking to Eric Stafford for himself and his family. Have you ever said to yourself, well, you know, I have all this experience behind me. I'm helping companies grow. I know what it takes to help them grow. Why not just create my own company and be vertical in that company and then build it to an IPO and retire? Um, I, I have thought about that. And right now, I, you know, I just had a deep sense of I need to um, contribute to some of the issues that I see in the news. And I, I felt like I, I, I felt like I found my calling, honestly, to when I applying our model to the mighty middle businesses to support diversity and inclusion to create economic opportunity. And so I, I am so clear on my purpose right now that that is that that trumps the economic opportunity I could have in, in other areas. Once I get this up and sustaining, you know, I, I may go do that. But right now I'm I'm really comfortable that I'm doing what I need to be doing. One of the things that interests me about CEOs is that you evolve to a CEO level. Uh, and along the way, you've learned things. But CEO is six hats. It's operations, it's teamwork, it's management, it's finances. Uh, and usually people come from one discipline. How did you find yourself being able to to wear the the six hats and, and and master all of the all the different responsibilities, or do you find that you master some and you delegate others? Yeah, I, I found that to your point. I had a heavy operations background, and so I was a CEO with a heavy operations background. And a lot of times, it seems like you either have an operations or a kind of a front end of the business backgrounds uh, out of sales and marketing. I was operations, and so. As I got into my first and even first COO role, I, I read a books on finance and the, you know, the seat from the CFO, the seat from the CIO. And I, I really wanted to understand their perspectives and the, you know, not, not technology per se, but what does a CIO think about? What keeps them up at night? And so I spent a couple of years really trying to understand the other seats around the table and what their perspective was to help me build better relationships. And I think that helped me as I became CEO to better understand and appreciate what their role was in the business so that I could help them. And, and where I didn't have as much experience, you're spot on, and I would uh, spend more time to learn, but also um, hire good people that could fill the gaps that I had and make sure to empower them and, and just try to ask good questions, make sure that they I was learning with them as they're pushing the business forward and, uh, and keep everybody else aligned. You touched on my next question. You, you, you said it. What gives you sleepless nights? Yeah. Uh, so right now it's be, because we're so early in summit, it's, I have a high aspiration for the impact we want to make. And it's, we're, we're really early on. We've worked with a lot of businesses, but it's, it's still, are we really able to, our, our goal is to, to make a positive impact on a billion people. Can we really do that, right? So I, I constantly am thinking about what else could we be doing to serve our purpose better, and um, and you know, and I get up every day thinking about the companies that we're working with at the time, and what can we do to help them? Because I know that our way to get there is one company at a time, but I'm constantly thinking about are we 
am I doing the best that I can to make the impact that I want to make? Very, very impact driven. There is a vulnerability, and, and, and because you're so devoted to the purpose of, of helping uh, companies and the economy and all the ramifications, I see a very big vulnerability, which is the following. The head of the company learns your discipline, and he absorbs it, but he's hiring people below him who may not be of that caliber. I'm just thinking to myself, in his marketing department, he doesn't have the people who really understand how to compete properly. So with all your effort and putting everything in place at the very top rung, but below that you're not in control of and really have no direct contact with, it's not what you do, and you're dependent so much of elements that you have no control over in order to achieve your goal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true and that what I what I found is that, you know, I learned from a couple of leaders early on that I work for that it makes a lot of sense to hire people better than you. The challenge with that is if you can't keep them challenged, then they're going to move on fast, right? So in with our company and with the businesses that we're working with, the biggest way to address that is to grow. And by growing, you're creating more opportunity for the leaders on your team to grow. And so I would I would always try to hire, and to this day, I try to hire people that are as good or better than me. I'm, in a lot I'm, of I'm, re- I'm referring to your clients. You, you, oh, yeah. Yeah, you've taught them, but below that level uh, of C, C-suite level, there could be a lot of weaknesses that affect all the planning and all the discipline and all and so on that you have no control over. And you're, you're measuring the success, but really you have no control of that success one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. So I, um, one question I ask is, um, and, and as the founder or CEO of a small company, a lot of times the company is you, right? It, it's it, your passion, your idea. And to get yourself out of that really hard to do. And I, I usually ask, where do you enjoy spending your time? How do we align your role that way? And then um, as we get into other tasks that they want to take on, are they the best person to, is that the best use of their time? And a lot of times the answer is no. And even if it, even if they can get it done better, if, if somebody else can do it 80% of what you can, it's probably better to delegate that. And then I do believe I got to the point at, at one point where I would, I would try not to make any decision that somebody else on my team could make because not only does it help me delegate and empower them, but it also develops them as leaders. And so those are the conversations I have with the businesses that we're working with. It's a really hard transition. And that's a bit of the, a bit of the coaching that we do in saying, Hey, it's a, you don't need to make all the decisions and uh, that's not necessarily your role. And it's okay to give up pieces of your business, just hire people that you trust and, and give them some, uh, some, some room to grow into those. It, but those are all, those are all mindset shifts that, that are really hard. I think to your point, but we do, that's part of the ongoing coaching and that, Hey, it's, it's not supposed to be easy. And, uh, but the, the, the companies and leaders that can, can make those pivots are the ones that scale. What advice would you offer to CEOs if you had a nail? One advice. What would, what would you offer? The, uh, I, I think the, the, 
build a strong team, build a strong team that works well together. And then, uh, you know, find ways and, and then find a purpose that allows you to, uh, to achieve something that uh, is beyond what you thought you could achieve as a company. And if you can inspire people with a purpose that they believe in and you can inspire people that on your team in your belief in them, when you combine those two, a purpose that everyone believes in, a, a higher purpose, a greater cause that people can get behind that, that gets them up in the morning when uh, on a tough day. And if you show your belief in them, those two things combine into a pretty high power team that then uh, becomes contagious through the organization. And so have a purpose, believe in your team. And what would you, you work with a very, uh, I'm sure quite a number of entrepreneurial companies. In fact, they're all entrepreneurial in a sense. What advice do you offer to young, up-and-coming entrepreneurs? Would it be the same, the team, or? Yeah, the other the other piece, especially for early companies and entrepreneurs, is get to know your customer. And, and that knowing your customer holds in the entire journey. What problem you're solving as you're starting to build a company? How do you get those insights back to your team as you're developing your product portfolio? How do you get those insights back into the backlog of enhancements for your portfolio? Staying aligned with your customer from start to finish holds no matter what, and especially early on. It's really, really important. Okay, this has been a fascinating conversation. How did you end up in Dallas? Uh, with Boeing. Uh, so Boeing uh, ended up taking a role here. Uh, my last role with Boeing was Boeing Global Services that is headquartered in Dallas. Yeah. Um, and you found it. And upstate New York doesn't interest you. Uh, not, I go back every year for a family reunion. So I'll be uh, next month headed up to Buffalo, New York. Upstate New York is gorgeous. The only problem I have is I often told friends, I don't understand how people can live in Buffalo. They have 18-foot snow. Uh, piles and they don't have a winning team. So what's the point? <laughs> that, that that is very true. And I'm a Giants fan. So I, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, it's going to be a better year for Giants fans. Okay. Okay. It was great. I really appreciate your time. It was extremely insightful and uh, enlightening in, in so many different ways. Fascinating. I wish you great success both for you and your clients. Yeah. Same here, Charlie. Enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Have a great day. You take care. Thank you for joining Charlie Katz, our executive extraordinaire, in yet another insightful interview. Be sure to check out more stories from CEOs across the country at bitbean.com forward slash CEOs speak to learn more about what it takes to get to the top and stay there.